This morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations. And uh, if you're wondering where in the world is Lamentations, uh, page 688, if you're reading out of the Pew Bible. Page 688, Lamentations, chapter 3. I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And while you're uh, finding your way to Lamentations as you're standing, I might uh, suggest to you that while we will read all 25 verses, that is merely to give you the context for uh, the essence of the passage that we will exposit this morning, which will run from verses 21 to 25. Hear the word of the Lord, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so my hope is from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Father, with the word of God before us, we want to have humble hearts. We want to be in a posture that is ready and willing to receive your word this morning. God, we have heard about the precious promises found in the gospel. We have sung about those promises. We have sung with enthusiasm about the hope that is ours in Christ. Yet as we read this chapter from Lamentations chapter 3, we realize that this author struggled But this author wrestled, and he wrestles like us. 
And so I pray as we continue this series, God of Wonders, where we are exploring your attributes, that you would help us, that you would help us to see who you are, to see what a great God you are, that we would uh, be restored to the place you desire us to be. God, if we are off track, put us back on track. By your Spirit, I ask that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would help us, that you would give us mercy on this day. I pray that as the collective people of God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are ready and willing to not react, but to respond to the truth of your word and that you and you alone would receive the glory. For it's in your son's word, the name you pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the meaning behind the word lamentation really conveys the idea of a loud cry. Verses 1 to 20 contain a whole series of loud cries. These are not whimpers. These are not minor sobs. These are loud cries of agony. These are loud cries of discouragement. These are loud cries of despondency. These are loud cries of hopelessness that come from the pen of this author. The author of Lamentations is generally assumed to be the prophet Jeremiah. We do not know for sure if the author is Jeremiah. It is not stated within this book. But Jeremiah is the one who uttered in the book of Second Chronicles the, the lament for Josiah. But there is something that is far more significant this morning that I want you to see. I want you to move beyond the mere author of the book. I I do not want us to get high-centered on, well, I need to know the author. I want us to get high-centered on the, the lament of the author itself. And the words that we see exploding off the pages of Lamentations chapter 3 come from a man who, I would say is experiencing what we might refer to as bitter providence. Bitter providence. Providence, of course, is the doctrine that is used by theologians to summarize the relationship of God to His creation. It is clear in Scripture, you see, that God oversees, that God governs and God controls every single event In the universe, God is in control of your families. God is in control of the decisions that you make. God is in control of the direction you travel in your car. God is in control of the direction you fly in your plane. God is in control of who you marry. God is in control of everything that you know about your family. God is in control, believe it or not, God is in control of this nation. This White House, this election, God is in control of Al-Qaeda. God is in control of ISIS. God is in control of every speck of dust in the universe. If there is one thing that escapes the providence of God, if if there is one maverick molecule floating around that either God doesn't know about or God doesn't have control over, then the simple fact remains that God is not 
God. And this is something that evangelicals need to wrestle with in our culture because we have become, we have become so trapped with wanting to be in control. Let me say as, as boldly and as humbly as I can say, we are not in control. The sovereign God of the universe is in control. And this man, this man who I assume to be Jeremiah, he understands the doctrine of providence. He understands that God ordains everything that comes to pass. He understands and embraces that, that God is in control of all of the big events and all of the micro events in the universe. Yet, you see it as you read his words, he feels boxed in. This is a man who is, is enduring an incredible burden. Here we have a man, as we read the pages, as we read the words of Lamentations 3, 1 to 20, we read about a man who's staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. As we read these words in verses 1 to 20, we see several several movements in the pages of Scripture. First, we see that there are mental issues. There is a mental struggle. And so mentally, as we think about Jeremiah, we can say this. This guy is at the end of his rope. Look at verse 1. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Would you mark that word affliction as we think about that for a moment? Affliction comes from a Hebrew word that, that means that he is in a condition of mental distress or anguish. And the Bible identifies many different kinds of affliction, including national affliction, social affliction, moral affliction, natural affliction, and spiritual affliction. And I think that a good case could be made that the author of Lamentations is experiencing something within all of these categories. If you have ever had either a mental breakdown or a mental meltdown, the latter is far more likely for most of you. If you have ever had a mental meltdown, or if your children have ever had a mental meltdown, just ask mothers if that's ever happened, then you will be able to sympathize with this man. He is struggling mentally. Well, he is also struggling physically. Look at verses 4 and 5. Here he says, He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. Which probably means that he is an old man. Which probably means that, that his skin is getting wrinkly. He has broken my bones and he has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. That phrase that he has broken my bones likely is, is a figurative expression of inner agony. The psalmist says that he had a bone ache. Something similar is happening here where at the very fiber of his being, his bones ache, his bones hurt. The psalmist says in Psalm 42.10, which provides a really a, a portrait of this physical exhaustion. It says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Have you ever been there? Adversity, pain, suffering, your non-Christian friends around you at school or in the place where you work say, oh yeah, 
Where's your God now when you struggle? What's going on? Some of you can stand with the, the prophet Jeremiah in his physical brokenness as, as you work yourself to the bone. Mel shared the, the difficult few days that he has had where you work and work and work and come to the point of complete and utter exhaustion. That is many of you this morning. Others of you may not be working yourself to the bone, but physically you have been struggling with illness. There's something in your body that the doctors can't figure out. There's something that that you can't figure out. The medication simply is not working. Or the medication is too expensive, and so you choose not to go with the medication in this crazy culture that we are living in. He's wasting away physically. He's also socially struggling. Simply put, he is a castaway. Verse 14 says, I have become the, the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of all their taunts all day long. Young people, if you have ever struggled to fit in at school, you didn't have the right clothes, you didn't have the right house, your parents didn't have the right cars, you don't have enough money, you don't have this, you don't have that, you don't fit in. You're, you're the laughing stock at the school. If you can relate to that, you can understand a, a small smidgen of what's happening here with Jeremiah. He's a social outcast. Spiritually speaking, he is experiencing the hand of God against him. The reason I can say that Jeremiah understands the providence of God, walk through Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, and look at all the personal pronouns. He or him, they all refer to God. Every single one of them. So he experiences the hand of God upon him. Verses 8 and 9. Though I call and cry for help, he, that is God, shuts out my prayer. He, that is God, has blocked my my ways with blocks of stones. He, that is God, has made my paths crooked. Why would God bring about this chain of events into Jeremiah's life? Those are questions that he no doubt asked himself. Verses 10 to 13 show that God has marked out this man for adversity. And then notice with me also that he emotionally is is completely spent. Emotionally, he is an absolute wreck. This is an inner turmoil in his life that spreads like a cancer. Verses 7 and 8. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. Verses 16 and 17. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in the ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. I've been reading a biography about President George Washington, one of my favorite presidents. And most of us have been raised with this idea that George Washington had wooden teeth. It's not true. He didn't have wooden teeth. He had teeth that were likely made from from ivory. Teeth that were made from ivory. Now imagine putting teeth made from ivory with with, uh, springs and, and contraptions where you stuck them in your mouth and you would have to do a lot of public speaking as President Washington would do. And he was constantly afraid that his ivory teeth were going to pop out. My Uncle Paul had false teeth before he went to be with the Lord. He was at a soccer game one time in Southern California, and he was yelling as he was fond of doing at the soccer games. And both the upper and the lower fell out and went down about six rows. <laughs> he went down to this lady and said, excuse me, those are my teeth. 
that's pretty funny, you know. And my uncle's a guy that could carry that off. Now think about George Washington with these clunkety teeth made of ivory, and he had gum disease. His, if you've ever had gum disease or gingivitis or struggle with any sores in your mouth, and now imagine putting those clunky pieces of teeth and just. It just grates on you. And it was deeply discouraging for him. Now, look what's happening with Jeremiah the prophet. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. My, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and cower in the ashes. Notice, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. There is a good chance that... Some of you this morning can identify, perhaps not with the teeth thing, but you certainly can identify when the prophet says, I've forgotten what it's like to be happy. And so mentally, physically, socially, spiritually, and emotionally, this man is on the brink of utter despair. There isn't much more. I think you would agree. There isn't much more that he could do to paint a brutal portrait that is worse than what we have here. Honestly, it's just plain hard to read. I remember when I was a senior at Multnomah University. This is before I knew Jerrine, and Jerrine doesn't even know I'm going to share this story, so I'll apologize now. (laughs) But I was dating another girl. (laughs) That was horrible. And my best friend was dating uh, a girl as well. And within that same week, she dumped him. My girlfriend dumped me. And so we had the bright idea that we were going to wake up early, 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 early. Go to the cafeteria and we were going to read Ecclesiastes. You know, that was over 30 years ago. And my friend Dave and I, we still lament about that decision to read Ecclesiastes. You ever read Ecclesiastes? That's not the right book to read after you get dumped. It's the word of God, but it's not the right place to go. But even though Jeremiah 3, 1 to 20, is incredibly difficult to read, there is something that, that is, in a counterintuitive in way, very refreshing about these words. Why is it refreshing? Because the author is so real. Because he's, he's so transparent. It's refreshing because nothing is sugar-coated. Life is not sugar-coated. It's refreshing. It's refreshing because it reminds me of me. That's why it's refreshing. And I think it's refreshing because it reminds me of, of you as well. Because we live a life that is filled with pain. On this side of the fall, and before Jesus comes and makes all things new, we live within the bookends of pain. And so my question before we dig into this text this morning is this. Have you been there? Have you experienced this at some point in your life? Or more importantly, Are you experiencing it right now? Are you going through a divorce or have you gone through a divorce? Are you enduring depression or have you experienced depression in the past? Are you filled today with despair? Or do you remember what it was like to go for two years without a job? 
Do you remember what, what it was like to, to see your loved one in the hospital day after day after day after day, suffering, filled with pain? Are you struggling with a darkness that refuses to lift? The fog continues to linger in your mind like a gloomy day in London. It feels like the fog will simply never burn off. Do you battle despondency? Do you battle discouragement? Have you come to the point where you say, I I can't go on. I'm through. Game is over. Now, because life has a track record of bringing these kinds of brutal realities into our lives. We must face a question, and this morning we we must face it head on. And so with the brutal honesty that the prophet employs in verses 1 to 20, we will pose a question together with that same kind of intensity and that same kind of brutal honesty. And the question is this, what should be our response? What should be our response when the pains of life threaten to pulverize our souls? What should be our response when the, when the crushing waves of tsunamis, the tsunami of adversity, come crashing onto the shores of our lives? Well, the answer to those questions is found in the passage before us. And within that passage, we will uncover yet another attribute of God. And I want to call that attribute to your attention this morning. And so after 20 verses of soul-shattering lament... Jeremiah offers a word of transition. It is a turnaround word. It is a world-changing word. It is a life-changing word. And this word marks a new way of thinking. It is a, a worldview shift, if you will. And the word is found in verse 21, and it's a word that might come as a bit of surprise to you. Because it's not a verb. It's not an action word. It's not a noun. It's a little three-letter word. And we ran into this word last week. We ran into this word in Romans chapter 5 when we learned that even though we were sinners. Do you remember that? If you turn there with me, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And I want to reintroduce that word. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And look with me at verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And please remember that for the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is telling us how sinful we are. He helps us to understand that Apart from grace, we will go to hell. Apart from Jesus and his sacrificial work on the cross and his resurrection, we will go to hell. Verse 8, but, there's the word, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Go back to Lamentations 3. Verses 1 to 20, those soul-crushing laments over and over and over and over again. Verse 21, here's the world-changing, life-changing, soul-uplifting word. And the word is, but, but this I call 
to mind. Here with this one word, as but rolls off the lips of Jeremiah, his perspective changes, his outlook changes, his worldview changes. One could say that his very life changes. And so this morning, I want you to see that Jeremiah has a strategy. He's been very open and honest about how he feels in verses 1 to 20. But I want you to see that there's a logical progression that involves five specific responses. And these responses will help us to frame an answer to the question, how shall we respond when our soul is filled with adversity? Here's the first response and emerges in verse 21. The response is this, remember Remember, remember what verse 21 says this, but this I will call to mind and therefore I have hope. I want to encourage you if adversity is is like a like a a python from South America wrapped around your neck and you're about ready to give up. The first thing we need to do is remember who God is. That's what's happening here in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now, please remember the words that I have recited many times in this series. It is A.W. Tozer who rightly said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so this first step is all important. This is very, very important stuff. When... The, the snake of adversity is wrapped around our necks and we're about ready to, to give up. We remember who God is. We've, we learn much about Jeremiah as he remembers three specific attributes. Here's the first attribute. Notice it emerges in verse 22. He remembers the steadfast love of God. Jeremiah remembers the steadfast love of God. And this should come as no surprise to you. This is what we learned about last week. This is that same word that comes from the Hebrew word loyal love. This love, you see, never ceases. The love of God is deeper than the deepest of all oceans. His loyal love is higher than the highest mountain peak. His steadfast love, as we learned last week, will endure forever. Psalm 36, 5, your steadfast steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 33:18 Behold the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love. I want you to see the second attribute that Jeremiah remembers. He remembers the mercy of God. Notice in verse 22 after he remembers that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, he says his mercies never come to an end. Now, we are getting ahead of ourselves because next week we will explore in a deeper way about the mercy of God. For now, remember this. The essence of God's mercy is this. It's his compassion for his people. Aren't you happy to know that God has compassion for you? God has an everlasting compassion for his people. And here's what Jeremiah says. He says his mercies never come to an end. Now, the focus of our our discussion today is on the third attribute that he remembers. And I want you to see it emerge in verse 23. In verse 23, he remembers the faithfulness of God. 
The faithfulness of God. Now, that word faithfulness comes from a Hebrew word that means to be firm, to be steady, to be constant. This morning in Veritas, we learned that faithfulness also can be compared to another Hebrew word that means truth. It means truth. Our God is a God of of faithfulness, of firmness, of constancy, of trustworthiness. In the Old Testament, faithfulness, again, is a synonym for truth. And since God is consistently true, he is therefore the object of our trust. We can trust him. The word of God bears this out. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm chapter 71, verse 22. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. And so to say that God is faithful suggests that he has an unwavering commitment to keep his promises. This is a crazy illustration, but when I was about 11 years old, I have a, an aunt who promised to take me to the store. Brace yourself. It's a crazy illustration. She promised to take me to the store and buy me. You guys remember slime? Oh, yeah. That, that was awesome stuff. Slime. I, you don't want to know what I did with it. But the fact is, I never got it. She says, I promise you that I'll take you to the store and buy you some slime. I'm 49 years old. I still remember that. You say, it's a $2 toy. Get over it. Get some counseling. People remember when someone fails to keep a promise. Now with God, we're not talking about $2 toys. God has promised us a multitude of promises in scripture and you know what we can bank on today god always keeps his word he is a faithful god he is a a trustworthy god he has an unwavering commitment to keep his promises aw pink says it like this When we trustfully resign ourselves in all our affairs into God's hands, fully persuaded of his love and faithfulness, the sooner shall we be satisfied with the providences and realize that he does all things well. That is why we can say with the psalmist, or the writer of the psalm rather, it is well with my soul. And notice what Jeremiah says in verse 23 after he lifts up, after he remembers that God's faithfulness is new every morning. He says, great is thy faithfulness. And so when adversity stares us in the face, when it wraps its, his, the snake of adversity wraps around and coils around our necks, the first thing we do is we remember who God is. The second thing we do is this, is we rehearse We rehearse. You say, I'm sorry I didn't take drama in high school. That's a different kind of rehearsing. We rehearse here the faithfulness of God in Scripture. We rehearse the faithfulness of God in Scripture. 
And as we did in Veritas this morning, I want to show you five very basic but profound ways that God's faithfulness emerges in sacred scripture. The first thing we noted was that God rescued Israel from the Pharaoh. If you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 6, I want to look at that briefly with you. Exodus chapter 6, and we asked the question, was Pharaoh a good guy or a bad guy? And the, the mild answer is he was a bad guy. Pharaoh was a, a wicked leader. Notice what happens in Exodus 6, starting in verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel from the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. This is God speaking. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God rescues his people from the hand of Pharaoh. Notice, secondly, that God not only rescued his people, he protected Israel in the Red Sea crossing. Flip over to Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 30. Exodus 14, beginning in verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Can you imagine if you were one of those doubting Thomases? If you were one of those doubting Benjamins? If you're one of those doubting Sarahs as a Jewish person? And you made it through the Red Sea, not the Reed Sea, like the liberal scholars tell us. It was the Red Sea. It was a real, real water, and it was real deep. And what did God do? He parts the Red Sea, and what do they see? They see the Egyptians dead. Game over. Israel saw, in verse 31, the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And so at that moment, the Israelites must have thought, God is not only an awesome God, God is a faithful God. I want you to see, thirdly, that God betrothed himself God betrothed himself to his people, Israel. You don't need to turn there, but listen to the words in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. We read this, I will betroth you to me forever. This is God to Israel. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And you say, betrothal. That is not terminology that we tend to throw around anymore. Really, betrothal was the final step between a a man and a woman in the courtship process. And it involved something called paying the bride's price. The man would pay the bride price to the bride's father. And as one commentator puts it, he says, Here the qualities of righteousness, justice, love, mercy, and faithfulness 
are a sort of bride price that guarantees the permanence of the relationship. If a couple is betrothed, that, that, that stands as a guarantee to the permanence of that relationship. And here the point that we need to take home is that God has betrothed himself to you and I. If you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, I want you to see that God's faithfulness is confirmed by his commitment to the truth. Not only to be, as Jesus says, the way, the truth, and the life, but Jesus also helps us to understand that God has a high commitment to the truth. I want you to hear the words from Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, we read something that is very, very helpful. In Titus 1, we learn how committed God is to the truth. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. You see, as we learned a few weeks ago, God is a God of truth. Therefore, God cannot lie. He doesn't have the ability to lie. It's not within his makeup. Finally, I want you to see that God's faithfulness is confirmed in his ultimate allegiance to himself. His ultimate allegiance to himself. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, we read that when God made a promise to Abraham, do you remember that? When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so there Abraham stands in the presence of God and hears God promises to keep his word. And the question I asked the class this morning is, has God ever shown himself to be unfaithful to you? Guess how many hands went up? Zero. God is a God of faithfulness. And so when we stare adversity in the face, we remember who he is. We rehearse the faithfulness of God in scripture. But there's a third response, and that is that we must rekindle. We must rekindle. And the specific, the specific thing we must rekindle is hope in God. We rekindle hope in God. And the, the psalmist is in a similar situation. If you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 42. And this occurs several times throughout the book of Psalms. But in Psalm 42, we see that the psalmist is, again, in an almost identical position as we find Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. Look with me at Psalm 42, verse 5. Why? Could I ask you this? Do you ever talk to yourself? That's weird. So do I. And notice the psalmist is talking to himself here. What, why, are you count, why are you downcast, oh my soul? We would put it this way. Why are you depressed today, Dave? What's happening here? Why are you in turmoil within me? Notice what he says. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Verse 11 
he's talking to himself again. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Would you go back to Lamentations chapter 3 and notice what's happening here. First in verse 21, we've already seen this, but he says, but, there's the world-changing word, but this I call to mind. He remembers who God is, and therefore, do you see it? I have hope. I have hope. You see, when we turn our attention on the living God, when we turn our attention to the discipline of study and theology, which is to know God, there is a result. What's the result? I have hope. Notice also in verse 24, Jeremiah says that the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I want to make an observation that may have slipped past you. It doesn't matter how how mature you are in the Christian faith. This is something that we don't hear much anymore. And that is this. Hope in the Bible is not optional. Hope is not something for the believer that's just got it all together. He's the guy that, or she's the gal that, oh, they've been walking for Jesus many, many years, and he or she is such a hopeful person. I think that's the way we see hope sometimes, that we have this group of people over here, and they're the hopeful ones. It's a small group of people. And the rest of us, I'm always down. I wish I could be like that Christ follower. And I think the reason we're that way is we've come to the place where we think that hope is optional. Hope is not optional. Let me be even more explicit. Hope is an imperative. That's the brutal reality. Hope is not optional. It is a command for every believer. And hope comes as a result, as I mentioned, from remembering who God is and all his glory and rehearsing the faithfulness of God in Scripture. When I remember who God is, when I remember who God is and I rehearse his faithful acts in Scripture, I cannot I cannot, not have hope. You see how that works? A plus B equals C. I remember God. I rehearse his faithful acts. Wow. I feel better. Don't you? It's an unbelievable thing. Early on in my Christian pilgrimage, in my university days, I ran across an author. I'd never heard of this man. I had never heard the words David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in God's providential designs, he, he bumped me into a book by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I mean, it could have been anyone as far as I know. But it was a book that encouraged me and edified me and strengthened me and gave me courage in the Christian life. And I've, made, I've read many of his books since that day and many of his sermons and many of his commentaries. A book that I read in my seminary days, I picked up by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression. And there is a section in Spiritual Depression that I want to read to you where he comments on the words of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 42, verse 5 and 11 that we just read a moment ago. You remember when the psalmist is doing what most of us do? Talk to ourselves. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. 
I want you to notice what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about these words, and I want you to know a little bit of Martin Lloyd-Jones' background. They called him the doctor. And they called him a doctor because his first job, his first career was not to be the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, England. His first job, his first calling was to be a physician. He was physician to the queen. And God had other plans for the doctor. And so the physician turned physician of the soul and he became a pastor. And he's one of the most influential men in my life. And I would commend him to you. And so remember a man who used to be a practicing physician. Here is what he says about being downcast. Here's what he says about being depressed. He says this, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression I'd be curious to know if you would write on a line in your notes what you would write down. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. I didn't really like it when I read those words. What's telling me I can't handle myself? You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself and notice his prescription, like a good doctor that he was, is to talk to yourself. You must say to your soul, soul, why art thou cast down? Now, where does he get that? He gets that from Psalm chapter 42, modeling the psalmist. Why are you cast down? What business have you to be depressed? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself. Deny other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with the psalmist, I yet shall praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. When the pains of life threaten to pulverize your soul, rekindle your hope in God. There's a fourth response. That is, we must urge, we must resist the urge to live life on our own terms. Look with me at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who, what? Wait for him to the soul who seeks him. You see, when we walk through difficult times in our lives... Oftentimes, we reach a point where we will do just about anything to find relief. Some people find relief by by disconnecting from their friends. Some people find relief by disconnecting from their church. Some people find relief by unplugging and disconnecting from life itself. Some people find relief by turning to substances like alcohol or mind-altering drugs. Some people find relief by pouring themselves into their work and they become workaholics. Some people find relief by trying to fix the problem in their way, in their time, and on their own terms. God's word tells us something different. 
And it is the most counterintuitive thing you'll hear all day. When adversity grabs you by the throat, God says, wait, wait. And here's the interesting thing. Do you know what wait means? The Hebrew word to wait means to hope, to hope. From of old, Isaiah 64 says, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts or who works for those who wait for him. And so here's the principle. When you wait for God to act, sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes months, sometimes it may take years. The principle is, When you wait for God to act, God finds great joy as you place your trust in him. There's a final response as we close, and that is another action word, and that is we must run. We must run. And specifically, my guess is that most of you know what I'm going to say right now. You're not going to run to the grocery store. You're not going to run to your counselor. You're not going to run to your spouse. You're not going to run to your school. Where are you going to run? You're going to run to the cross. You're going to run to the cross. Spurgeon used to say this. I take my text when I preach and I make a beeline to the cross. You say, what about the Old Testament? Spurgeon says, I take my text and I make a beeline to the cross. One of the great ironies of Lamentations 3 is... Once again, that God himself stands behind all of Jeremiah's sufferings. My good friend Bruce Ware puts it this way. He says, because God ultimately controls affliction, it is specifically permitted for good. That is, God intended it for good. And so the same Jesus who allowed each affliction in your life is the one who can also identify with all of your afflictions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 The same Jesus who allows every event into your life has himself suffered for your sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says that, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The same Jesus who allowed each event into your life suffered and died on a cross so that you might be forgiven of all your sin so that you might have hope in God. And so when you embrace this final action step, when you run to the cross, really what you're doing as you make your way to the cross is you're affirming the gospel. You're affirming that God is a good God and has your best interests in mind. You say, God, I don't get it. Why do I have to face this suffering right now? In light of that disbelief, though, you run to the cross and say, I confess that God is a good God. I don't understand it, but I trust you. When you run to the cross, you are affirming the gospel. You agree that Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses. You admit your need of mercy and grace, which is given to anyone and everyone who places their trust in Jesus. When you run to the cross, you are affirming the gospel. You acknowledge that Jesus alone is your substitute. 
that is the sinless Savior, he is the only one qualified to bear your sins and endure the wrath of God so that you do not have to. Here's the truth point this morning. When the pains of life threaten to pulverize your soul, remember who God is. Second, rehearse the faithfulness of God in Scripture. Third, rekindle hope in God. Fourth, resist the urge to live life on your terms. And finally, run to the cross. I want to remind you and give four practical steps of obedience as we leave this morning. That this this response will involve discipline. All the things that we've talked about don't happen by accident. These responses will involve discipline. Additionally, that... If we are to respond in these ways, it will involve faith. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I can do it. You have no idea what I've been through. I may not understand, but you have a Savior who does understand. And so you exercise your faith. Number three, this God-centered response is always dependent upon learning. Many of you know that I place a great deal of emphasis on learning. There's a reason for that. The reason for the emphasis on learning is if you haven't learned it, you can't remember what you learned. If you haven't learned about the faithfulness of God, it's impossible to rehearse the faithful acts of God in Scripture. Steve Lawson says it like this. Every area of Christian living, our worldview, worship, walk, work, and witness is dependent upon a right knowledge of God. You see, if we get God wrong, we get it all wrong. That's why we're taking several months to walk through this study on God's attributes. Finally, I want you to see that this response is in itself Christ-centered. This response is Christ-centered as we make our way to the cross and trust in his good purposes for us. Oh, that we as God's people would rivet our attention on the faithful God of the universe and revel in his unchanging character, his unwavering promises, his unrivaled commitment to his people. And so may the faithfulness of God fill you with courage during the dark days. May the faithfulness of God drive the fear from your soul. May the faithfulness of God fill us with hope as we meditate on the word of God. And may we trace the faithful acts of God all the way back to the cross of Christ. And may we stand with the writers of sacred scripture and all the saints in church history who stand before the cross of Christ and utter these words. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, there are uh, only a few words left I can utter. Um, I'm in awe of who you are. I trust that the church family is in awe of who you are. And so we say with the saints of old, great is thy faithfulness. Amen.